Well, good morning and welcome one more time to Encounter Church. We're in a series right now called Overcome. And by the way, uh, when the message here is uploaded at encounterchurch.org slash messages, we have small group questions that come along with this in case you're doing life together with a community in a small group and you need something to talk about. You can pull those questions and they're up there every week. As soon as I finish, they get uploaded and posted. All right, today we're continuing the series, Overcome. And remember, we started off the series by seeing how God overcomes apathy to bring us to this place of resolution. Then last week we saw how God overcame fear and brought us to a, faith, a place of faith. This morning, we're going to see God overcome probably one of the questions that as a pastor I'm asked more often than any other question. Um, this is one of those questions that's asked often whether you're a church person or not, whether you're a believer, whether you're a skeptic. These are the questions that sort of just come up all of the time. And maybe you've asked one yourself, maybe probably up there in the upper lobby before church or maybe after. And it's like when you kind of gather me over there and you're like, hey, hey, pastor, or just Dirk, if you've been around here for a little while. And you're like, hey, can I ask you a question? And you get kind of like those shifty eyes, right? And I'm like, oh, what did you do? Just tell me. Just get it all out there. I got to know. I'm like, no, 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 I just, I have a question. And then I always know what it's about. I know what comes next because you're going to hush your voice and lean in and say, do you ever like doubt? And I'll look right back at you and say, never, ever, not at all. Right? No, no, just kidding. I'm not going to do that to you. I'd be much more compassionate than that. The truth is that we all doubt. We all bring this skepticism. We introduced this whole series by saying doubt is something that God works with. And we're going to see him work with that this morning. Apathy is the thing that God really, really detests. That believing but not really doing anything about it. So go back and listen to that message one more time. No, God uses doubt all of the time. And we bring doubt. And I want this to be a community where we can bring our skepticism, we can bring our wonderings, we can bring our doubts. Uh, I remember as a college freshman uh, in my dorm room, lying awake at night and just staring at the ceiling. And because we built a sweet loft, the ceiling was like 16 inches above where I was. So I didn't have to stare very far. And I remember just lying there and wondering, is there anything going on on the other side of that roof, right? Like as I pray, is it making its way through those 16 inches on up into heaven, wherever God was? I remember laying there and just bringing him my honest truth about my doubts. And I remember at the time wondering, the whole reason why I'm in college right now is to become a pastor. This is not a good sign, right? We all doubt Bring it. But as you bring it, I want to clarify something. There's a lot of reasons that keep us from faith. There's a lot of questions that you may have that keep you from fully jumping in or fully believing. There's a lot of questions and skepticism that your neighbors or your friends might bring about following Jesus. This story of a God who made everything and then stepping into it. And then that creation and that work of art cast him out of it by way of crucifixion. But he rose from the dead. That is a story that if you think about it for more than seven and a half seconds, I think it's really, really difficult to just accept as truth. So I think if you doubt today, that doesn't mean that you're a bad Christian. It simply means that you are honoring the story enough to think deeply about it. 
But I want to tell you something. As you bring that doubt and as you talk to somebody who maybe brings those doubts and all those good questions, questions like, how could a good and powerful God allow these terrible things to happen in the world? Questions about how God, why God, would choose to carve out of creation an a movement called the church and to start putting all of these jagged, ugly pieces of the world back together by way of the church. And how could we mistreat each other and the world so badly in the meantime? Uh, questions about how science and Christianity are not held in tension, opposed to one another, but how they actually point to and complement one another. All kinds of good questions. But this morning, I don't want to get into the, the fine point of any of those things, but I want to tell you this. I want to tell you this simple truth that might be worth writing down. I'm not sure, but somebody told me that it was at 9.15, so get your pens ready. You don't have to understand everything to believe in something. I just think that is so critically important because so often people go through their whole lives without jumping in or without committing to really anything because we believe, we misunderstand, and we think that we have to understand absolutely everything before we believe in something. And I just want to tell you that in so many ways, that's just not true. We believe in things all the time without entirely understanding everything about them. For example, after worship today, after most of you have cleared out, I'm going to shut the lights off, lock the door, and then go out to my car, start it, and drive home. And believe me, friends, I have very, very little idea about how the processes work inside of that vehicle to get me from here to there. I don't understand how these, these vehicles work. I mean, I, I get inside one and I know that it has something to do with the fact that dinosaurs lived and died a long time ago. And somehow that dinosaur meat became oil, got turned into gas. I pour that liquid dinosaur meat into my car, start it, and it gets me home. I said that this morning. Our, uh, our electric player, uh, John, he's a mechanic. He's worked on my car a number of times. And he's like, that makes a lot of sense. No, okay, I see where he's coming from now. Uh, I, I don't have to understand. That's my point. I don't have to understand how everything works in order to believe in something. And I don't think you do either. The questions that I think you have to answer this morning and in your life are these two, just two. Is the story true and is it worth it? Which is to say, did he really live after death? And is he worth committing my life to? Because there's a lot of things in life that I'm going to have to give up in order to follow more closely after him. I'm going to have to give up certain activities. I'm going to have to give up certain beliefs about who I am. And what I ought to be capable of, I'm going to have to give up being in certain places at certain times because of my commitment to pattern my life after Jesus Christ and living and loving exactly how he lived in love. Is the story true? And is it worth it? And if you're asking about those two questions for yourself, if you are invested, if you are in, friend, I think you are in some magnificent company because I'm not exaggerating when I say post-resurrection, when Jesus had already called his shot, I'm going to die. And then three days later, I'm going to come back to life. His closest followers to a T one by one, each one of them doubted the doubt rate post-resurrection was 100 
1%, but there's one guy who stands out head and shoulders above all the rest for being doubters. Listen to this story from John chapter 20. There's Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. The words are also going to be on the screen behind me. By the way, if you don't have a Bible at home, just take it. We love giving those away all the time and we do. So it is now, it's yours. Starting in verse 24, it says this. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, uh, by the way, Thomas was his uh, Hebrew name and Didymus was his Greek name and his American name would probably be T. Diddy. You're welcome. I think it's just kind of, <laughs> but seriously, um, Thomas is a Hebrew name. It means twin. Didymus is a Greek name. It also means twin. And we never really find out who his twin is. And so there's a lot of speculation that happened early on in the church to say, maybe that's on purpose. Maybe that's intentional. Maybe John, the author here, wanted to never share with us who his twin was because he wanted all of us to believe that we could be Thomas's twin that we could be just like him. Maybe John wanted us to know that whatever doubts we have, whatever skepticism we bring, we are not you, church. You are not alone. Nevertheless, twin, twin, one of the 12, he was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Way to call out Thomas for not going to church. Imagine on the very first like, like church happened once in Christianity at this point. Like it's just, Jesus rose from the dead. The guys are having a small group. That's church for them, right on. They're huddled around and they're doing probably what came naturally to them. And they're just, they're like praying. They're asking God for help. What do we do next? I'm so confused. I don't know. And then Jesus shows up and it's the literal, the very, very first Easter celebration. And now for all of history, Thomas is immortalized for missing church on the first Easter. <laughs> Thomas misses out because he didn't show up. The rest of them, they were there. I think besides poking fun of Thomas for missing, missing church, I think there's a deeper point there that simply is to say that church, a lot happens when you're not around. Uh, like there's this point in here about maybe church today, maybe inevitably after we close our like small group cycle, by the way, we're pushing small groups right now and say, hey, find a community. We do life together. Inevitably, when we sort of close that and there's like massive groups are like, yep, they're off and running. There's going to be a number of people that are like, hey, can I get into a small group? And it's like, oh, <laughs> do you talk to me a little bit later? Or maybe you can lead one, you know, something like that. Um, a lot happens when you're not around, especially when you come up and you're like, hey, I mean, like communication, I just, I never heard about it or something like that. And I just, oh man, we could grow in communication, but I think also all of us, just as a reminder, a lot happens when you're not around. I got an email from somebody um, earlier this week on Wednesday who took the time to write about just how important it is to be around. She said back in college, she started attending Encounter and she had no idea that this journey after graduation uh, would take her overseas to work in Europe for a season, two, three years, something like that, uh, term-based. And she goes, it's so difficult to like find a community and find a people to be a part of. I, I always took it for granted that I could always be around back when I was living in Michigan in the States. Now, she said, just thank you. I stream every week and I'm so grateful that I can be a part of this community even though I'm living overseas. I'm done in a year and I can't wait to jump right back in because even though I was away, I feel like I was still around. And I just think that is the coolest testimony to like making this a commitment and saying a lot happens 
You miss a lot, but a lot happens when you're not around. This is one of those, those powerful stories I heard about how um, this guy, he was, he was going through a lot. And it wasn't like all of a sudden everything lose your faith kind of a lot. But it was like he went into a job he used to love and it's like the boss yelled at him and it just didn't work out for him. He didn't know what it would take to be successful in that place. He didn't know what it, if he could ever be successful in that place. And so like work life wasn't going super well. He comes home and home life like isn't going super well. The kids are kind of sultry and withdrawn, like a marriage life. They're just sort of like going through the motion. There's no spark. There's no passion. There, there's no emotion and romance there anymore. And there's just like kind of going through the motions of everything. And, and they're not really like clicking, not at all like they used to. And through all of this, somehow, somehow worship community, spiritual community gets put on a back burner. And he just, without thinking about it too much, he quits once. And once turns into twice. And then pretty soon, a couple weeks turn into a couple months. And he doesn't even quite realize that even though the wife and the kids are like getting dressed and going to church as part of their weekly rhythm, he has a normal, also weekly rhythm of, of just like not. And he doesn't even realize how normal it is to not be a part of it. And so one time he's hanging out at night. He's, uh, he's sitting at his fire outside a campfire. And there's a doorbell he hears. He goes up front, answers the door. And it's the pastor of the church. This is not about me. This is not right. So, and he's like, great. You know, like nobody wants to get that. I, I'm a pastor. I get that. Like nobody wants to like skip church a bunch of times and then see the pastor show up on the front porch. I understand. <laughs> And the guy's like, oh, can I come in? And he's like, sure, you know, I'm just hanging out outside. So they, they go through. And the pastor, he never says a word. They both just sit down. And that's it, nothing. And like 20, 30 minutes goes by. And these two guys just stare at the fire. That's it. And the pastor leans over to one of the kid's marshmallow sticks and pulls it up reaches it into the fire, grabs one of those like red hot coals, picks it up, brings it over, puts it on the, the cinder block around the campfire and puts the stick back. They both watch as this bright red coal fades to kind of a pale orange and then gray and then black. And the pastor just sort of stands up and walks out. <laughs> Point taken. The next weekend in church, the guy's in church, he looks over at the pastor, he sees them afterwards, and he's going, listen, in all my years listening to you, that was the best sermon I have ever heard. A lot can happen when you're not around. Thomas missed Easter. He missed literally Jesus that morning. The next week is going to be different. The disciples fill him in in verse 25. The other disciples told him, and he said, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Thomas said, now, unless I see, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. 
You guys, I have to like rescue Thomas from the one-dimensional like caricature, the cable news version that we've turned him into. Like he's a real person, it's very, very complex. Not only was he a twin, which most of us didn't realize, but also there's other verses in the Bible written about Thomas. You probably have heard the one-dimensional version of him. You probably know him as Doubting Thomas. I thought somebody was going to say Didymus, and I'm like, you were listening. No, no, no. Um, Doubting Thomas was his, was his other name that he's, we're used to hearing him as. A few chapters earlier in the story, in John, Jesus is saying, I'm going to go back to Jerusalem. And his disciples all to a tear are like, no, 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 no. Do not go to Jerusalem. Jesus, they want you dead in Jerusalem. That's a bad idea, very dangerous. Like Jerusalem equals disaster. Don't do it. Thomas is the guy who stands up and says, <clears throat> let us go to Jerusalem so that we may die with him. Does this sound like doubting Thomas to you? Like the guy's courageous. He's, he's brave Thomas, not doubting Thomas. He got pegged this one time because he missed church. And then he said, and then he said, if, unless I see him, like all of you already got to see him, I will not believe. Okay, I don't want to call him Doubting Thomas right now, because the thing that I love most about this part of the story is how real it gets of Thomas saying, I tell you what, church forever sharing this story, here's my wisdom, here's my advice. Do not settle for a secondhand faith. Thomas stands up and he goes, I'm not going to believe simply because my friends believe. I'm not going to believe. I'm not going to say that I'm in just because the family that I came from said that they were in. It's not good enough for my faith, for my belief, to simply rely on the fact that once upon a time, Parents had me dedicated or baptized on a stage. It's not good enough for me to simply be around a Christian group and call it good. It's not good enough for me simply to go to a Christian school. Did he say that? He, he totally said that. It's not good enough for me to settle for a second-hand faith. Thomas says, I want to see it. I want to experience this thing for me first hand. And so he puts it up and says, unless I see, unless I feel, unless I experience, I will not believe. And verse 26, Jesus shows up. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. You know he's not missing church twice. <laughs> not after what happened last week. Thomas stood with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Now, I got to tell you, every time I've read this story, I think, when we get to this part of the story, questions start to arise. Like, how did, Je how did Jesus get through those locked doors? It just... I want to highlight something. He had just risen from the dead. They put a spear in his side and the water ran water, the blood ran watery and red. 
They nailed him to a cross. They were professional executioners, people. They took him down because they knew he was dead and then they buried him. And then in your small group, when that dead guy is standing in the middle, the question that you do not have is, I thought I, thought I locked the door. That's not what the point of the story is. I don't know. He came in through the side. Doesn't matter. The point of John telling us that the doors were locked was nothing about how Jesus could walk through. The, he made that door. The point was that Rome had just executed their rabbi, their Messiah. And they were wondering if they were next. And they were afraid. The point that John shares here is simply that Jesus shows up in your fear. And he brings a word, shalom, peace. But we're not talking about the rest of the disciples this morning. We're talking about Jesus. I'm, we're talking about what he does for one man, Thomas, and for his twin, all of us. What I love about Thomas is that he shows up. Is that he has doubts. He has skepticism. I think like each one of us, he doubts. He wonders, church, but he doesn't wander. And if I could lay down like a, a charter for how this should go at, at this church now, because I want this to be a church where we do life together. I want this to be the kind of church that in that small group and in those conversations in the upper lobby, and, and it, you wonder and you have questions and you have doubts and you have skepticism. I want this to be the kind of place where you don't have to hush in a quiet voice, afraid that somebody is going to hear that you're a real life person. I want you to know that you can ask those questions to everybody around you. And if they give you a funny look, they're the ones that don't belong, not you. Because we're a kind of people that wonder in community. We wonder, but we don't wander. We wonder by showing up. We wonder together by asking those questions. We wonder by reading books and reading blogs and reading other things about those questions that we have. We wonder in the context of a community, but we don't wander off in isolation where faith goes to die. We're here and we support each other and we love each other even through the tough times, especially through the tough times. Amen. Amen. Verse 27 though, Jesus is there and imagine how creepy this is because last week you said, put your unless I put my finger there and my side there. And then Jesus says, I was listening. Verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, he said, put your finger here, see my hands, and then reach your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Now this language, the, the, the passage, the Bible here, New Testament was written in a language called Greek. And because I chose poorly in seminary, I had to learn that language. And now I'm going to share some things with you because that's the price of the education. The word that is used there for put, it is not like touch. Like, hey, let me tell you the story about how I got this scar one time. No, it's not like just touch. The word that's used is the Greek word balo. Let's hear you say balo. Nice. It means to cast or to throw. <laughs> when Jesus shows up and he... 
And he remembers Thomas's same words. Unless I touch those holes, unless I throw my hand into his side. And Jesus is going, if that's what you need, Thomas, and all of Thomas's twins, I want, you to, I want you to grab your arm and I want you to throw it into my side. This is not a scar that had miraculously healed over in eight days. I did rise again from the dead. I'm not bleeding out. I do have an opening in my side where this just happened. Throw your hand in there. Grab a rib if you want to. I gave my life for you once. If I can give you an organ to help you believe, I'll do that now. Stop doubting and believe. Jesus gave Thomas, this is the thing, he gave Thomas exactly what he needed in order to believe. He accommodated Thomas in his doubt to bring him to the place of belief. And I think for you, his twins, Jesus gives you exactly what you need to believe as well. Now there's a caveat on that, which I'll get to in just a moment. But first, I wanna share a story about what we think that we need to believe. So this is a story of a pastor uh, that I heard back when he was a little kid, uh, sixth grade, that's growing up in the South, and he started to have these doubts. And because of the climate where he was, he felt like he couldn't, he couldn't tell anybody about that. He couldn't share any of his reservations or skepticism with anybody. So, so what he decided to do is when he went to bed one night, he took his, uh, this picture, this framed picture of Jesus that he had hanging up in his room because it's the South, and, and he tilts it a little bit. And then that night he prays and he goes, Jesus, if you can create the universe, you can straighten out this picture that I have in front of you in my room. Amen. You've got eight hours. <laughs> and he wakes up the next morning and he looks over immediately with hope and wonder in his eyes. This chance that God had to convince him once and for all. And he looks at that picture. Nothing happened. Still crooked. And now he's angry at the God that he's not even sure he believes in anymore. Because he's going, you had a chance. I would have been so in. And he blew it. So he grows up, kind of in, kind of out, mostly out. And he's in college. He decides to go to a big state school, university down south. And he's joined this fraternity that he knew going in had kind of a, a rebellious reputation, let's call it. And he's only there for two, three years when they get into a lot of trouble, the leadership of that fraternity. I'm talking like arrested grand larceny kind of trouble. And they're gone. He's promoted into leadership in this vacuum that has now been created. And the university is saying, it's just not worth the trouble. We're going to revoke your charter. You're not going to be a fraternity anymore. And he's going, no, 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 don't do that. I've got a turnaround plan. And he hatches this plan to start a Bible study on campus in, in his fraternity. And everybody around knows his reputation. And they're going like, no way is this guy going to do this. He starts getting like this massive turnout of people who are saying that they're going to come to his Bible study, mostly because it's like, have you heard like who's leading that Bible study? I mean, we're going to show up to that thing because I want to see what happens. And he's like, 
Admittedly, looking back, this thing is like half PR, I wanna save the fraternity, and half, I don't know, I'm still kinda wondering like who God really is. Maybe this thing could actually help. I know life isn't really turning out all that well the way I'm living it, so I don't know, maybe I'll try something else for a change. Maybe it'll start working out better. And the day of the Bible study, he says he's walking to class and he's starting to think about like, I don't even know, how do you lead a Bible study? What is that? I don't have a Bible. <laughs> I got all these people coming over later for my first ever Bible study and I don't have a Bible. And so he goes, it's not even like the case that I, I prayed to God for a Bible. I didn't have enough faith to even pray at that point. I just kind of, during that class, I just sort of like sent energy upward and hope it made it high enough to say, Bible, question mark? I didn't have enough energy to pray, faith to pray, but I walked out of class and lo and behold, the Gideon Society for the first time ever was on my campus handing Bibles out to anybody who wanted one. Do you want one? He's like, actually, yes. He's, Can I get a few for some friends that are coming over later? Stacks of Bibles. And he's going, no, God missed his opportunity to convince me with the miracle of a tilted picture frame or a face in the cloud or whatever it might take in order for you and I to believe. God missed his opportunity to show himself in a miracle. But years later, when I was really, truly receptive to whatever God had for me, it didn't take a miracle. It took a Gideon society whose literal job it is to give Bibles away on college campuses and hotel rooms to show up and say, Bible? Question mark? And I was in. And I knew it was not miraculous. But God gave me exactly what I need to believe. That pastor now started the largest church in the state of Oklahoma. And there's a lot of churches in Oklahoma and down south just incredible. God gives us exactly what we need to believe. And C.S. Lewis adds, and maybe that's not what we think we need. Even if it's not what we want or we think we need, he still gives us exactly what we need to believe. I think he's speaking, church. The question is, are we listening so Jesus shows up and Thomas didn't need to grab a rib or touch an organ or touch his hand. Thomas hits the deck in verse 28 and says, my Lord and my God. Thomas, was it, is it true? Of course it's true. I saw the nail holes in the hole in his side. Thomas, was it worth it? According to Christian tradition, the disciples huddled up in Jerusalem in the book of Acts when Jesus said, go to Jerusalem, where you are right now, Judea and Samaria, surrounding count counties and states, and then to the ends of the earth. According to tradition, the disciples gathered around and said, okay, ends of the earth. And so they draw straws or cast lots. I don't know if it's a long straw or the short one. Thomas gets East India and he goes through Afghanistan. He sails around to the southern tip of India. He finds a Jewish synagogue there and convinces four of them to turn towards Christ, put their hope in him. 
He talks to the Hindi people and convinces 3,000 of them to follow and pattern their lives after Christ. He so disrupts the local villages and economy that they want him dead. And in December 21, 72 AD, he was martyred. Thomas, was it worth it? I wouldn't have given my life if it wasn't. I don't think this story though is about Thomas. I think the message for you today is about Thomas's twin. Because Jesus wraps it up, not talking about Thomas, but about you, church. He says in verse 29, Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you've believed. And then he talks about you and I. And he said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I don't know why Jesus would say something like that. Like, I don't entirely get why it would be that Jesus wouldn't just show up in the cloud or in the piece of toast or in the picture frame thing. I don't know why it would be that Jesus would say, I'm not going to show myself explicitly to you. I don't know why Jesus would say, I want you to trust on faith and not sight, except for this, except, except for this. If we walk by sight, it will take us as far as we can see. But if we walk by faith, God will take us as far as he can see. If we live by sight, we will rely and we'll only go so far as our own ability and our own energy can take us. But if we live by faith, our energy, our ability is only limited by God's. And there's going to be specific seasons in your life where you will need to walk by faith. Because if it was the other way around, you'd have given up and walked out a long time ago. And I know, church, because I've seen it. And I've lived it. This, this is real now, but, but I've been married for 13 years now. And I know that I don't have a lot of credibility to speak. Some of you have a lot more. But I can look past in the rear view now. And I can look at specific times and seasons in my life and in my marriage. Where if I'm walking only by sight, I'm giving up and I'm going home. It's not worth it anymore because I can't see a way out. I look back and go, years five and years 10. And if my wife were here, she would tell you probably for her years two, seven, and nine. I just couldn't see a way out. I don't understand why I'm in this mess. And church, I will tell you, thank God. We do not walk by sight, but walk by faith. And it is not by sight that's going to carry us into our 60th year together, but only by faith. Will we be able to sit on that porch one day and have one of you ask, is it true? Of course it was. I've experienced it. Was it worth it? What else could be more worth it? Thomas died for his faith. The question for us, are we living, are we willing to live by it? Wait to stand up. Let's pray together.